That's our prayer this morning as Adam Johns uh, comes uh, to open God's Word with us this morning. Uh, Pastor Aaron is on his second week of sabbatical, assumably enjoying this time uh, very well. And so, Adam, we're glad you're here today. Thank you, Russ. This morning we're going to be having our sermon, our preaching out of Colossians 1, 15 through 23. We're in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be verses 15 through 23, and we're reading out of the ESV. The word of the Lord says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What you think about Jesus matters. And it's not just that you believe he was a real person, but what you think about Jesus, who he was, what he was like, And we all have an image of Jesus. All of us do. We all have a mental picture. If you close your eyes right now and someone said, describe to me who Jesus is, you have a picture in your head of who Jesus is. And when you read the scriptures or have any other book, when you read it, when characters are talking, you narrate what they sound like in your head, right? The characters get a voice. Our imagination kind of fills in the gaps. And you do the same with scripture. There's a picture of Jesus in your mind and in your heart that speaks the most to you what he was like, what he sounds like. Some of us maybe tend to think Jesus has the, the nice shepherd that walks with little children and the sheep come to him and all that type of stuff. Or maybe you have a picture of Jesus where he's this angry old guy sitting on a throne up in heaven like that God type image where he just has the smite button waiting to push and destroy you. Or maybe your picture of Jesus is where he's just kind of indifferent, where he's just kind of like a hippie, where he's just like do whatever does for you, make you happy type stuff. We all have a picture of Jesus that we hold dear to, even if we're not quite quite able to express it. There's something you believe about Jesus, what he was like, who he was. And theologian and professor, a man named Scott McKnight, he wanted to explore this phenomenon, this, this, these perceived pictures we have of Christ, especially amongst Christian youth, the students he has. And in one of his classes, he began to do an experiment. And in a Christianity Today article written in 2010, he said this, On the opening day of my class, some New Testament class, I give a standardized psychological test divided into two parts. 
and the results are nothing short of astounding. The first part of the test is about Jesus. It asks students to imagine Jesus' personality, with questions such as, does he prefer to go his own way rather than act by the rules? And, quote, is he a worrier? The second part asks the same questions of the students, but instead of, is Jesus a warrior or is he a warrior, it asks, are you a warrior? Not warrior like fighting, but a worrier. And the test is not about right or wrong answers, nor is it designed to help students understand Jesus. Instead, if given to enough people, the test will reveal that we all think Jesus is like us. Introverts think Jesus is introverted, and extroverts think Jesus is extroverted. Spiritual formation experts would love to hear that students in my Jesus class are becoming like Jesus, but the test actually reveals the reverse. Students are fashioning Jesus to be more like themselves. And if the test were given to a random sample of adults, the results would be measurably similar, because to one degree or another, we all conform Jesus to our own image. And church, if this is true, this is to our detriment. We need a clear picture of Jesus Christ because the Jesus of our imaginations, of your imagination, is insufficient and not supreme. And last week's reading began with Paul hearing about the Colossians, what they were going through. He's in prison. He gets the report of them. He hears about their faith. He hears about the controversy that's coming against them. And he gives thanks for them. And he he prays for them to know and obey God's will. And he ends his opening statements of the letter in Colossians 13 and 14. He says this, that he, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is because of this reason, this transference of your citizenship, that we need a clear picture of Jesus. We need a clear picture of our King, this beloved Son, because everything in life, in your life and in mine, everything in the universe, revolves around your understanding of who Jesus is and being a part of his kingdom. And this morning's scripture provides that accurate portrait for us. And according to commentator Douglas Moo, this morning's reading is, quote, the most famous in the letter. It is one of the Christological high points of the New Testament and provides a critical basis for the teaching of the letter. It is the distinct contributions of Colossians, a vision of reality with a focal point on who Jesus Christ is. It's this portrait of Christ we're about to read. It dictates the rest of this letter. It's the key to unlocking Colossians, if you will. It reveals our king, and it's the basis on which Paul begins to refute all the false teachings that were coming against the church. The rest of the letter is grounded in this morning's reading. The rest of this sermon series will somehow relate to this portrait of Jesus Christ. Because when we recreate what the Colossians were going through, we don't know quite what this heresy was they were facing, but somehow it attacked the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the remedy begins here. And the portrait that, can be, that we're reading this morning, it can be summarized as this, and it's our main point for this morning, is that Jesus Christ is supreme. And the first reason Jesus is supreme is because Jesus is the creator Let's read verses 15 and 16. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is the creator. Verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. Paul begins by asserting that Jesus is supreme, first off and foremost, because he is our creator. And he uses two labels to do this in verse 15, and then he gives us a purpose clause or a purpose statement in verse 16, which explains and qualifies these titles, these labels. And the first label that Paul gives Jesus in that he's our creator is he says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And note that he doesn't say that Jesus is made in the image of God like people, like you and me. Man is made in God's image. Is made in God's image. He simply says that Jesus is the image of God. And this term image can denote a stamp on a coin, like we see the presidents on our bills. Roman currency throughout history, people would put their picture on their money. It's pretty common. We have presidents on our bills. Or this uh, term image can denote a statue that represents an idol or a deity. The idea is that whatever the thing formed is, it resembles accurately that which is portrayed after it. The statue represents reality. So when Paul refers to Jesus as the image of God, he only does it here and one other place in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's using this term to teach us that Jesus is the stamp of God. He is the revelation of God. Jesus embodies everything that makes God God, and he shows us who the Almighty really is. And St. John's Gospel is founded on this same reality. In fact, the whole New Testament does, that Jesus reveals who God is to us. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. So even as we just read Exodus, if you read the Old Testament, when, they, when Moses encounters God, he's actually seeing somehow, I believe, the Son. Because if this is true, no one has ever seen God. No one. But the one and only Son has who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. John 1.18 Jesus embodies and reveals to us the Father, the Almighty. And the second term in verse 15, he says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean a person born in sequence, like child one, child two, child three. It's a title. And even though Jehovah's Witnesses claim that this verse proves that Jesus is a created being, there's, there's no way you can get around that this is clearly a title. It's used throughout Scripture to denote a position of superiority or preeminence, like to be first, to be number one. We see this in places like Psalm 89, verse 27, when the Lord calls King David his firstborn, meaning that King David is his number one guy, his number one ruler, his most faithful follower, and the object of God's faithfulness. So here in Colossians, Paul is saying simply that Jesus has superiority or supremacy over all creation. It is the image of God at work in creating the cosmos. And verse 16 gives us the explanation of this. He says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, Jesus, for him, Jesus. Everything that is, the visible material world and the invisible spiritual world, whatever all that entails, we're not really sure. Like, what exactly are the thrones and dominions? There's a lot of debate on those things. Not 100% sure. 
But whatever they fully are, they've been made by the Lord Jesus Christ. So from the brightest stars in the furthest galaxies to the unborn child in the womb, Jesus is the creator, period. And so when you read Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the Lord Jesus Christ at work. That is Jesus creating in history. That is Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus made you. Jesus made me. Jesus has made everything. He is the clay and we are the potter. Therefore, by definition and by demonstrable action, Jesus is supreme. And this is the primary reason, church, why we can do and should worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It is appropriate to worship Jesus. Psalm 95, 1 through 7, called the, I don't pronounce this well, it's a Latin term, Venete, is a, is a canticle which is just singing scripture. It's sung regularly in the Anglican and Episcopal churches as a part of their liturgy, as a part of their worship. And it captures this heart of attitude perfectly that we worship the Almighty simply because he is the creator. By God being our creator, that alone qualifies him to be worshipped. Psalm 95, 1 through 7 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We, church, worship this God-man named Jesus because he is the dude that created the world and everything in it, including you and including me. So do you worship Jesus? When we sing the songs this morning, is Jesus the highest object of your affection? Is he the one that you picture as singing praises to? And if not, you have every reason to do so and no excuse not to. We worship Jesus because he is our creator. And Jesus is not only the guy who made everything. He is also the one who literally holds reality together. And that's our second point this morning. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is the sustainer or the preserver of all creation. Verse 17. One simple verse says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One short verse. But this short verse speaks volumes. It reiterates the idea of Jesus being the creator, but it also recognizes that Jesus not only created the universe, but he keeps all things together. And this may seem like an odd idea even to think about. But it's really important for us as God's people to recognize this. Your personal, continual existence is because Jesus Christ allows you to continue to exist. Just think about that for a moment. The next breath, the very breath you're taking right now, is because Jesus Christ allows it. That's pretty hefty. Jesus allows you and I to live because he wills it. And there's a group called Shane and Shane. Um, they write modern Christian hymns and worship songs. And they did one on Psalm 46. That, it's one of those few Christian songs that, like, that burn in my mind. They have a verse in that where they say, 
Lord, you know the hearts of men, and still you let them live. Our God is a merciful and good God and knows every human being, and he still allows us to live, even the rebellious, which we all are at one point. Our existence is credited, our continual existence is credited to Jesus Christ. And it's not just you and me he holds together, but it's this podium, this world, all the galaxies out there. Without Jesus, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei, gravity would cease to work, and the planets would not stay in their orbits. The universe's continual operation, it's not founded on natural law or physics, but it's founded on Jesus Christ's will and thought. He is the force behind the veil, so to speak. Everything stays in coherence, or everything that is staying in coherence, is due to Jesus Christ. And this is very contrary to what most people believe, and they're taught, especially we have a very anti-supernatural approach to the sciences. Not that Christians are against science, it's important to learn, but that is not a view that is taught. The idea that Jesus is the cause for the universe, that he upholds it. And these types of anti-Jesus in science, where Christians are supposed to engage in our world, they can stem back in my opinion, all the way back to the Enlightenment, because it was during this period of the Enlightenment that you had many antichrist philosophers like Baruch Spinoza and David Hume, which I spent my undergrad reading their work, and it's just like, man, these people really hated Jesus. They hated him a lot, but they were the loudest voices, and we still read their works today. They directed all their philosophical arguments against God and against the Bible specifically, and really against its morality, And they would attack the concepts of things like miracles by asserting that natural processes exclude the probability or even the need for divine things or divine intervention. Like God, we don't need God because nature just does nature. Therefore, any rational person should reject supernatural elements. That's what they would, that's what they're teaching. And in turn, this rejects the need for a personal creator and a personal sustainer. God is not needed when the universe is just kind of like on autopilot. It just does what it does. So one of David Hume's classic arguments, it kind of goes something like this. It's his way of undermining the supernatural element that keeps the universe together. Imagine if I told you of an event that clearly violates the laws of nature, something miraculous. Let's say, for instance, I saw a man turn water into wine. And let's assume you know me. You know that I'm honest and not crazy. I'm sober and of a sound mind, and you recognize that I really believe what I saw. We have some kind of relationship, and you, you understand that I'm convinced that I am, for sure I know what I saw, and given that relationship, you know then that the chance of me purposely trying to deceive you is like really slim. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just trying to tell you emphatically, like, I saw this. This really happened. But given natural law, like gravity and thermodynamics and all those things, what is the probability of someone actually turning water into wine? You, the receiver of this report, would need to make a decision on which is probably more true, that someone, in fact, violated the laws of nature turning water into wine, or that me is perhaps mistaken. Maybe it was powdered Kool-Aid being poured from a distance and I didn't see it, changing the color of the water. Something like that. Or maybe it was like the magicians and they do those sleight of hand tricks. Things of that. Maybe it's, I was being deceived by the other person and I just happened to believe the deception. According to David Hume and many of the philosophers during the Enlightenment, on the scales of probability, natural law should always win because impossible supernatural things just do not happen. 
Therefore, it excludes the need for a supernatural involvement of a creator and a sustainer. And using these types of arguments, people to this day, to this day, ultimately try to dismantle the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection, stating it's nothing but a myth or a fantasy, which by inconsequent undoes the entire Christian religion. We hinge everything we think, say, and do on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the only thing you're left with is just really some form of deism. And many Americans believe in deism. They may not say that, they may not label that, but deism teaches that some transcendent God, some transcendent power may or may not exist. We're not really sure. But whatever, this transcendent power or God, whatever it is, not personal, doesn't care about you and me, doesn't even know you and I probably really exist, wound up the universe like a clock and just let it go on its natural path, grinding forward to whatever its end is, not getting involved in the affairs of mankind. That is deism. And many people in this country believe some form of that. We know it. When you watch TV shows, people use all these terms like, just the universe just needs to work for me. And, oh, universe, do these powers on my behalf. Like, they say that type of stuff, right? We, we know what our media portrays because it portrays the common belief that there is something kind of out there, but it's not the God of the Bible. And even if it is, we couldn't know it. Deism is like a child who makes a toy sailboat during a rainstorm. You ever did that as a kid when you make the boat and you go out to the street and all the water in the gutter is flowing towards the sewer and you make the boat and you place it on there and you just watch it go and you kind of chase it a little bit? You just watch the boat go to its ultimate end, its ultimate destination, which is the sewer, right? That's where the water's flowing or whatever's beyond that. That is deism. Some impersonal thing or God, whatever it is, just doesn't care. And it gives us no answers. But our God, our creator, our sustainer, Jesus Christ, is not like that. He is personally involved in his universe that he has made for himself, including you and me in our lives. Therefore, things only make true and absolute sense when Christ is kept at the center because things only have an ultimate reason for being. This is really important. Things only have an ultimate reason for being when God is at the center of it all. Because if God's not the center of it all, our only other option is nihilism or non-existence, purposelessness. Nothing else remains when God is not the center of it all. Nihilism teaches that the cosmos will eventually cool down, the last star will burn out, and when you die, you simply cease to exist. There's no reason for being. You just do. You just exist, and your life has no value really whatsoever. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible proclaims. That's not what we preach. That's not the gospel. Jesus, as we just read, sustains the very universe he made for himself, and he sustains your very life and your very soul. So when you shuffle off your mortal coil and you enter the grave, Jesus still sustains you even then, and he does that through his act of redemption which is our third point this morning. Jesus is supreme because he first off and foremost is your creator. He made you. He made me. He made the universe. Jesus is supreme because he's our sustainer. He holds everything together. Everything owes its, everything has to give Jesus credit for its continual existence, even in all of eternity. And the way he does that, sustaining us forever, is through his act of redemption. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is the Redeemer. Verses 18 through 23 say, And he, Jesus, 
is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means to be first place. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled or made peace in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In a parallel fashion to the first point, Paul attributes several titles to Jesus in verse 18, and he gives us the purpose clause or the explanation to these things in verse 19 and beyond. He calls Jesus the head of the body, the church, and the church being God's people. He is simply declaring that Jesus is the ultimate leader of God's people. No pope, no president, and no pastor is the head of the church. Only Jesus Christ is the ultimate head of the church. Any elder or any pastor will, that's worth their salt that understands can honestly tell you that they are underlings. They, are, they work under the authority of Jesus. So when you look, read in history like the English Reformation where uh, I think it was King Henry, pretty sure it was him, he's like, I'm the head of the church. I'm the king of England. It's like, well, that's just not accurate. Not accurate at all. Only Jesus is the head of the church. No mortal man is the head of the church. And he isn't just the leader of God's people. Jesus is our king, and he's our king, but he's also the cause and entrance into God's kingdom. For Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's not only the leader of God's people, he's how you join the club. He's how you get on the inside. He's the door. Our king went before us into the grave and came back as the first resurrected person in all of history. Several people in the scriptures were raised from the dead, like Lazarus. But all of them eventually died again. And I think of Lazarus' situation. You know what that would be like to come back from the dead and then be excited and like, oh no, we got to go through it again? Like, I know it's a miracle and it attributes you know, deity to Jesus and that he's the resurrection, but the thought of like having to die again sounds... Maybe you'd be less scared, but just the thought of having to die twice, which actually people outside of Christ, they do die twice. But we'll get to that in a moment. But all the people in the scriptures who were raised from the dead in the Old and the New Testament, they all eventually died again. But Jesus, though, is the first person to be resurrected, the first person to be loosed from death itself, no longer bound by it as demonstrated as he walked the earth post-resurrection in a glorified form. And in doing so, through his resurrection, he's opened the doors to eternal life and reconciliation or peace with God is now made possible for all of creation. We just read it said all things, the visible and invisible, they are reconciled or these two parties now, like if you fight with your spouse and you're angry at each other, eventually you reconcile and come back together. You make peace with one another and come to terms. That language is used here to describe that creation itself through the death, burial, and resurrection through the gospel, creation itself has been reconciled to God, to Jesus. The birds, the airs, the trees, all of the created universe has now been essentially won back to the authority and rule of Jesus Christ. I mean, everything has already belonged to God, but specifically the resurrection now 
emphatically won for all the rest of history, all the creation back to Jesus Christ. And creation itself, if you read Romans 8, like Romans 8, 20, it says that groans, the creation itself groans to be made right, to be perfected in that day that Jesus returns. Because on that final day when Jesus returns, he will heal the created order of its corruption, making ultimate peace no more tsunamis, no more earthquakes, none of that stuff that destroys life. The created order will be healed, but it is specifically that the souls of men that Jesus has special concern over. And through his resurrection, Jesus has pioneered, like being on the frontier, the first one to go out, the first one to go into the unknown in the wilderness. Jesus pioneered a new and living way into God's kingdom that whomever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our God and our King went to the unknown realms of death for us and subdued it on our behalf and made a stable way, a stable entrance into God's kingdom. And this is only possible because, as Paul just said, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And I believe what he means when he says this is that Jesus was able to do this, make this new and living way for us, make this salvation and reconciliation, this peace with God possible because when the fullness of God was dwelling in Christ, he enabled Jesus to fully obey the Father and endure the cross, despising the shame, facing God's righteous wrath for the sins that have and will be committed, your sins and my sins, paying the price on our behalf completely. God's righteous wrath has been satisfied. In the very words of Christ on the cross, before he gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished. Only thing that remains between a Christian and God because of Jesus Christ is peace. If you're in Christ, the wrath of God is no longer upon you. And this peace and reconciliation you and I now experience through Jesus Christ is characterized in verse 22. By believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is really important, God sees you as holy, which means like sacred to God, blameless and above reproach. And these are not just made up words. Like this is Paul talking about what the peace of God looks like between a mortal person that sins against God and now is believed in his son who is supreme. God says you are holy. You're sacred to God. You're blameless now in his sight. You're above reproach. These are not just abstract ideas. They're a reality with Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus sees you. This is how Jesus interacts with you. Your sins are no longer between you and God. You can be in God's presence and have peace forever. That is what the gospel has done for us. So even when you stumble and even when you fall flat on your face in sins, this is still true. Your feelings of guilt, shame, and remorse do not undo what God says is true about you if you believed in Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. It's been won for you. This new and living way is a sure fact with God. It is true of you if you're in the gospel. And this is how God re relates with you from the moment you believe in Christ for the rest of eternity. This is the peace of God. You're holy, you're blameless, and above reproach. Your sins are remembered no more. And if that's you today, if you're living in guilt and in shame for past sins, or maybe even something this morning. If you're struggling with understanding how God feels about you and sees you, and you believed in Jesus, memorize this verse, take it to heart, 
don't let it escape you because the enemy does such a good job at reminding you of your moral failures, of the things that come out of your mouth. And those things are sinful and bad. That's not untrue. We know that, right? We know what sin is. But because of Jesus, you have peace with the Almighty forever. God does not hold your sins against you. You are loved by Jesus Christ. He loves you. Loves you to the grave and back. But all of this, though, according to verse 23, hinges on a big if, doesn't it? This is peace with God is true only if you remain in faith, you remain in the gospel. It means you remain you believing in him. And there's a, that's a promise and a warning, right? This blessed peace with God is yours forever if, if you stick close to Jesus Christ. But to those who reject Christ or they turn away from him, there is no hope for you outside of Jesus. There is nothing for you outside of redemption. There's no peace with God outside of Jesus Christ. There's just destruction and death. Only expectant judgment. For our Jesus is supreme. He is our creator. He's our sustainer and redeemer. And he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Outside of Jesus Christ... We're just guilty, and we're enemies of God. That is why the gospel, this gospel Paul preaches, this, this portrait of Jesus is so important to understand. And this is what we, we base our life on. We have an obligation to know this, believe this, and tell others about it. Because outside of Christ, like I said, there's, there's just nothing. And Christian, the Jesus of your imagination, as we said in the beginning, whatever you think about Jesus, this morning's reading should hopefully replace that. Read these things well. Study these things. Your Jesus is supreme. He's not some hippie. He's not some bestie that just says, do whatever you want. You know, Jesus is our king, and he loves you dearly, and he is our best friend, but he's our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. Christian, this is your king, your good and gracious and merciful king. And to the non-Christian, those who willingly are rejecting Jesus, who maybe sit in these chairs week after week, or maybe this is your first time in church and you're hearing this, this is your judge. This is the one you will give an account to when you die. And as scripture says, it is a terrifying thing to be in the hands of God, to stand in his judgment, because you'll know in that day exactly who you are, and you'll know exactly who Jesus is, and that's not the will of God for your life. God's desire is for you to have peace with him and be with him and to know your faithful creator. And if that's you this morning, as we're coming to a close, will you believe in Jesus today? Will you bend the knee to your king and receive the peace? Jesus already has the victory. The job of being a Christian, the first step in Christianity is to surrender, to raise the white flag to God. That is what he's calling you and I to do. You cannot win this battle against Jesus. You have to come to peace with God on his terms in no other way. And he's inviting you this morning to be a part of his people, to join his kingdom, and help other people see who he really is. Let's bow our heads, let's pray, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together and continue to worship. Father God, we come before you as your people. We come to worship your son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. God, come as a man. 
Lord Jesus, you are supreme. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. And you're our redeemer. We did not make ourselves. We are powerless in that regard. We don't control when we're born or when we die. Um, We are pretty much powerless in most of life. But you are faithful. And you love us so dearly that you went to the grave and back so we could have eternal reconciliation, eternal peace with our faithful creator. Help us understand who you really are, Jesus. I pray that you would strip us of our Uh, false pictures of you, our false perceptions of you, that you would help us see you and your glory for who you really are, that you are our king. Lord, to those who do not know you this morning, I pray that you would grant them the greatest mercy and give them the courage it takes to surrender, to take up the cross, to take up eternal life. It begins as an act of surrender, Lord, as we've all had to do in our personal lives. Help them recognize who you are and your love for them. Help them believe that you love them so dearly that you bore their sins that you didn't deserve so you could save them. We can't save ourselves. We can't be made right with you, Lord, except through your cross. And I pray that if anybody's struggling with guilt or shame this morning, Lord, if anybody's struggling and they're doubting your love, remind them, Lord, that you died so you could present us as holy, which means we're sacred to you. We're blameless. We're above reproach. Our sins are not before you anymore. They were placed on your son. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we remind us of this as we partake now of the Lord's Supper, that the body and blood of Jesus is the ultimate price that was paid by our good and faithful king. Lord, continue to glorify your son. Help us understand these things of who you are, Jesus, that you are supreme. Amen.